You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now step into the arena of ideas with your host, Dr. Brian Shelton. Welcome to you from the mystic, majestic mountains of northwestern North Carolina. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Chilton, and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes to an hour that we have together. If you're new to the Bellator Christie Podcast, we discuss the issues that truly matter. Uh, we go into issues concerning theology, apologetics, which means defending the faith, historical issues, um, philosophical issues, biblical issues, and a whole lot more. Uh, quite honestly, if you've had deeper level questions concerning the Christian faith that you might not be able to cover on uh, Sunday morning worship services. Uh, this is the podcast for you. And so, again, we hope that you're doing well wherever you may be. Here in the Carolinas, here in northwestern uh, North Carolina, it is cold and frigid. Uh, it's in the 20s um, today. Well, the 20s this morning, 40s for the high. Uh, and I'm going to tell you, it, 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 we about set a record uh, from what I'm, I'm understanding. And it's it's interesting how the weather pans out here in uh, the Carolinas. If you've never been here uh, and you're interested in what the weather's like, we have the most bipolar weather <laughs> perhaps anywhere on the planet. Uh, it can go from feeling like summertime one day to being in, in the midst of winter the next. I mean, especially in spring and fall. And so, uh, man, I tell you, we went from summer-like weather uh, last week to now just cold and frigid weather this week. But we hope that wherever you are, that you are nice and warm and cozy. And so we, we invite you to kick back and relax with us as we uh, discuss the issues that truly matter here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. As we get started, I want to let you know about an exciting month ahead. Can you believe that it's already November? My goodness, where has 2023 gone? Uh, it just seemed like yesterday. We were we were on here talking about the graduation taking place this past May, and here we are now in uh, in the beginning of November. I mean, this year has just flown by. But this month we have some exciting. Uh, shows on tap for you coming up, and I'm excited. We have uh, some very special guests joining us uh, in the month of November. Coming up next week, we've got a very compelling discussion uh, with Dr. Benjamin Laird and Dr. Leo Purser. You're going to have two two teachers, two professors from Liberty University on with you uh, next week, and they're going to talk about the formation of the New Testament canon. And I actually have his book. Uh, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy uh, by Dr. Benjamin Laird. It's called Creating the Canon, uh, Creating the Canon, Composition, Controversy, and the Authority of the New Testament. We're going to talk about this book and some other matters concerning uh, the formation of the New Testament canon next week. Look forward to hearing uh, Dr. Leo Purser, my good friend, also my dissertation chair. Uh, he's going to be on with us coming up next week. Benjamin Laird, Leo Purser coming up next week as we talk about the canon. Uh, and then coming up November 16th, uh, we have with us Dr. 
Dr. Mark Phillips. Uh, he is a professor at Tri-State Bible College. I believe it's in Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. He's going to talk about the intertestamental period. This is the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of people think that nothing happened during that time. <laughs> Well, they couldn't be further from the truth. There's a lot that took place between the Old Testament times and the New Testament times. Uh, So he's going to talk about the intertestamental period and the development of the Apocrypha. Uh, Why do Protestant Christians not accept the the Apocrypha in the biblical canon? Um, And should we read it as Christians? Now, I'm going to tell you my opinion. Uh, I think that it is very beneficial to read the Apocrypha, but I'm I'm, uh, excited to hear what Dr. Phillips has to say about the issue. Coming up November 30th, we're going to take a week off uh, for Thanksgiving. So coming up the week of Thanksgiving, there won't be a podcast on that week. So just so you know, uh, that week we're going to take a break for Thanksgiving holidays. And so coming up November 30th, we've got another double header on tap. Uh, we're going to be joined by Dr. Michelle Johnson, Executive Vice President at Bellator Christie. She's going to hop on uh, the podcast and discuss the historicity of the Bible. Now, like myself, Dr. Johnson minored in church history in our in our program at Liberty, and so I'm excited to see what she has to say about the historicity of the Bible and why we can believe in the historical claims that the Bible presents. And then coming up shortly thereafter, that, that, that let me just say this real quickly. I'm getting ahead of myself. For that show uh, with Dr. Johnson, there's going to be a special start time coming at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. That'll be 6 p.m. Central. So be sure to mark that on your calendar. 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Central. And then uh, we'll go through that podcast. And then coming up about 30 minutes afterward, we're going to have our third episode of the Question Zone with our own cowboy apologist, Curtis Evelo. So we're excited to see what this month brings. There's going to be a great, some great discussions to be had and some great uh, dives into to the bibliology as we continue with this series. And believe it or not, after this month, we only have one month left in the Bibliology series. It's been an incredible series. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you've gained something from it as well. And I hope you've, you've, it's been a blessing to you. Now, let's jump into tonight's topic. Uh, tonight we want to talk about, this is actually diving some into my dissertation. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about oral traditions uh, oral traditions and the uh, the uh, dependability of God's word. Uh, so before, uh, quite honestly, before uh, the Bible was written down, you had these oral traditions. Uh, that, and quite frankly, if you think about anything in history, before it's documented, uh, there's going to there's going to be the transmission of information by uh, eyewitnesses as we discuss the things that happen uh, and and we will we'll, we'll end up telling individuals you in the Bible tells us we need to have at least two witnesses to verify a claim or at least that was the tradition of the day and time Jesus sent his disciples out two by two for that very reason so when we talk about oral traditions we're talking about the the transmission of information before it was ever written down and did you know this it's it's exciting to really think about but many people in the new testament times in the first century in the first century israel many individuals actually trusted the transmission of oral traditions 
more than they did the written text. Find that fascinating. At least I mean I do. Uh, so so let's let's dive into this whole issue. So first and foremost, what do we mean by oral traditions? When we speak of oral traditions, we are speaking of stories that are important to a person and or a community that are passed along from one generation to another. Before stories were written down on paper, communities often transmitted stories to their children that existed from numerous generations of the past. Most assuredly, most of the stories that we find in the Bible originated with oral traditions. Even in the most literate of cultures, a person does not walk around with a pen and paper in hand documenting everything that they see. Neither do most people walk around with a video recorder taping everything they see. When important events transpire, historians, who often serve as detectives, interview eyewitnesses to compile information to accurately recreate the event. Since the reports stem from eyewitness testimonies and may not be recorded for some time after the event, then the story is initially told and spread by some form of an oral tradition or an oral account of what took place. So let's ask the question. This is an important question that's often asked when we talk about oral traditions. Do oral traditions work the same as the telephone game? Now, living in a written culture, I was suspicious when I first learned about oral traditions. Like many, I assumed that oral traditions must work comparably to the old schoolyard game telephone. You remember this game? You remember playing this as a kid? A uh, telephone is played when a person A uh, tells a story to person B, then person B tells person C, and it goes on down, um, and it continues on down until you reach the end of uh, the end of the line, or, the, or or goes around the table. And the interesting thing is, by the time the information is told by the last person, the story has completely changed from what the first person said. The funny game shows that information is not always accurately and precisely communicated from one person to another. However, oral traditions do not operate in the same manner because communities are involved with the storytelling. Now, it's important to remember that when we see, let's just use Jesus as an example. When Jesus taught, he did teach privately to his disciples, but the vast majority of times... He spoke publicly before crowds of individuals, numerous individuals. He performed miracles in front of numerous individuals. His crucifixion was a very public demonstration, a very public display. His resurrection was seen by over 500 people at one time and seen by numerous people over a 40-day period. So it was a very public event. The Exodus was a very public event. Many of the stories in the Bible were public events. When, when stories are understood by numerous eyewitnesses and are carried along within the community, people from the group can correct the storyteller if he or she tells the story incorrectly. Now, anyone who's married knows that our wives will quickly correct us if we say something out of line. Well, imagine how much more self-correction occurs within an entire community, especially if the story is of it holds the importance that the gospel does, or if the story holds the importance as like the miracle of the Exodus did. Uh, when something becomes 
supernaturally involved where, where it becomes a matter of God working within a community, God working within a people, or the, just individual stories, amazing stories that happen with individuals, the story is passed along in very accurate detail. For instance, I heard spoke with a gentleman today who told a joke. I had actually already heard the joke. It's about a preacher who was baptizing uh, this this individual who was an alcoholic and he was trying to find Jesus. and And uh, he goes to the preacher. He goes to the preacher and uh, uh, says, "Preacher, I want to find Jesus." And he says, "Well, let me baptize you here in the river." And he dunks him under the water and he says to the man, "Have you found Jesus?" And he says, "No, I haven't found him." And then the, the preacher dunks him again in the water and says, Have you found Jesus now? He says, No, I haven't found him. So he dunked him the third time, this time holding him down until he saw bubbles uh, come up. And then he held him up and says, For heaven's sakes, man, have you found Jesus yet? And the guy being baptized says, Preacher, I don't know where he is, but Jesus is not here under the water. He's not here. I can, he's just not under here. Well, the funny story was, I, I told this story in church, I heard it from someone else, but this other individual, even though the, a few details were changed, the core content of this joke was the same, to the level and degree that I could say, yes, I've heard that joke before. It's interesting, just something like a joke can be communicated while the details may be changed slightly, when it becomes part of a community or a culture it can be accurately transmitted uh, and and self-corrected. So no, oral traditions don't work like the game telephone. So now there's a question of, is there a model that best describes how oral traditions work? Now here's really where I really dive into my, my work, my dissertation research. There are three models that have often been offered to describe how the transmission of oral traditions work. First, there's the view held by the German Theological School, which was defended by one Rudolf Bultmann. Now, let me just say, if you're not familiar with Bultmann, Bultmann was a highly liberal theologian uh, to the point that, that he believed that, that we need to question some of the miraculous elements in Scripture, that there was a lot that he dismissed in Scripture. So it's it's not a surprise that Bultmann held that there was very little that we could know from oral traditions and it coming from this German school of thought. The German school defended a position known as the un- informal, uncontrolled model. Now, when we talk about formality or informality, we're talking about whether there are people assigned to preserve the information. By informal here, they indicate that no one was assigned the role as a guardian of the tradition. As such, no hierarchy existed, and no one necessarily preserved the story. Now, when we talk about being controlled or uncontrolled, we're talking about whether the people passing the information were concerned about memorizing the information and passing it along accurately. So when he says it's informal, he's saying that no one was assigned the role as a, as a preserver of the information. But he's also saying by uncontrolled that there were no safeguards in place, that people could add and change and adapt it to what, however they felt necessary, even if they changed the whole entire story uh, completely. So by uncontrolled, the information was not necessarily memorized, resulting in each group adding to the tradition as they saw fit. Well, as you can see, if you hold that viewpoint, then there's no way of knowing what was accurate in Scripture, historically speaking. 
Buman notes the existence of New Testament prophets who likely held that when they spoke, they spoke for Jesus. To a great degree, Buman's model does not resemble the classic game of or, or excuse me, Buman's model does resemble the classic game of telephone more than the others. But most troubling, Bootman asserts, and he says this in his book, Jesus and the Word, and he, these are his words, I do not think that we can know almost nothing concerning the life and personality of Jesus, since the early Christian sources show no interest in either, are moreover fragmentary and often legendary, and other sources about Jesus do not exist. So, obviously, Bootman doesn't believe that we can know anything about Jesus from oral traditions and the gospel texts. In his mind, the gospels tell more about the church than they ever do about Jesus. Well, thankfully, that's not the only model out there. When examining the New Testament texts and the similarity they hold with rabbinic practices, strong doubt is cast upon the Bootmanian viewpoint. This was true of the Scandinavian school led by Harold Reisenfeld and Birger Gerhardsen. I just found out with an ancestry test that I'm 15% Scandinavian, so I say, woohoo. They advocated a view known as the formal controlled model, completely opposite from what Bootmann and the German school held. They believed the transmission of the Jesus traditions was formal in the sense that they were entrusted with the disciples and early leaders of the church. Moreover, they were controlled in that the information was memorized and passed along according to the rabbinic traditions. Now, if you had to choose between these two schools, I would say that this one is is more accurate, more true with what we find in the New Testament texts. If there is a sense that the information was controlled, then we should see evidence of mnemonic devices in the biblical narratives. And in my dissertation studies, I was shocked to find numerous examples of mnemonic devices used throughout the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, it was said that antithetical parallelisms, which is a teaching tool and mnemonic device, is found over a hundred times alone in the teachings of Jesus, and that is far from the only mnemonic device that's found. Uh, while formalized mnemonic devices throughout the parables were more difficult to come by, they were certainly found in the narratives and in the teachings of Jesus as I went through my dissertation studies. This counters Bootman's objection, as well as those offered by Bart Ehrman against the Scandinavian school. Uh, to see more from the Scandinavian school, I would highly recommend you check out the book Memory and Manuscript by Berger Gerhardsen. It's a fascinating read. It's very technical and very thorough, but it's a very fascinating book. Another aspect that favors the Scandinavian school is the discipleship model in the Gospels. Jesus taught and formed his disciples in a manner that fits rabbinic tradition. The disciples were brought on to be the caretaker of Jesus' message. Thus, the Scandinavian school really even suits better suits the model set forth by Jesus than does the German school's interpretation. Despite the model's strength, some scholars have criticized the Scandinavian school because they have, di- have had difficulties accounting for the differences between the gospel texts. So, so, for instance, why does Matthew's Sermon on the Mount read slightly different, differently than the Luke's Sermon on the Plain? 
In some cases, it may be said that the gospel writers refer to different events. Yet in some other cases, like the case with Jesus and Jairus and Jairus' daughter, such explanations may not be sufficient to explain the differences. So, why does it seem like the teachings of Jesus differ in form from one gospel to another? Kenneth Bailey constructed a model that that others like C.H. Dodd and W.D. Davies previously suggested. He calls it the informal controlled model. This form of oral traditions transmission was controlled in the sense that those passing along the information were indeed concerned about memorizing, learning, and accurately transmitting information about Jesus' life and teachings. However, it was was informal in the sense, um, informal in the sense that there wasn't, let me fix this right quick here, I'm sorry, informal in the sense that there wasn't one specific person that was responsible for its accuracy. Let me say here again, it was informal in the sense that there wasn't one specific person that was responsible for its accuracy, rather it was the community's responsibility. As such, and this could be a community of leaders, and it could be, in fact, the entire community, uh, the brotherhood of, of, of the body of Christ altogether. As such, there may be different streams of oral traditions as different people had different, different views of, of what took place. Uh, and this is to be expected with eyewitness testimony. This format allows gatherings to come together called the Haflat Samar. This is actually still found in Middle Eastern um, cultures. They still do this. They still get together and preserve these these oral traditions, biblical stories. Um, in Muslim in Muslim areas, uh, they'll do this with a preservation of teachings from the Quran and other other um, other stories that are important to them. So the Haflat Samar means to preserve, and these communities would communicate the stories they held so dearly. They were allowed to slightly alter the story to communicate the information to different audiences. So if there was something that may not. Uh, like so, for instance, in Luke's gospel, he may use a terminology to to that the Greek audience would better understand than necessarily the Hebrew audience would. That's what that's talking about. But they were not allowed to change any of the pertinent information. They were not allowed to change any of the details that were important to the story. So for my studies in the Gospel of Matthew, the informal controlled model seemed to best fit the information within certain segments of Matthew's gospel. However, I honestly think that Bailey's model uh, is really more closely akin to the Scandinavian model in Berger Gerhardson's uh, formal controlled model than, than, um, than we think. And in fact, there are more similarities than differences. And it certainly opposes Bootman's informal, uncontrolled model. So, um, so we cannot dismiss the important role that the communities played in the preservation of Jesus' traditions. However, we can't dismiss the hierarchical structure that existed in the early church either. Jesus chose three inner circle disciples, then 12 of his closest disciples, and commissioned some 72 disciples whom he sent out two by two. So I think we must allow a little more flexibility than the Scandinavian school permits, but I think we need to accept a bit more formalization of the Jesus traditions than even necessarily Bailey allows. 
So perhaps we could allow something of, of a mix and call it the semi-formal controlled model. That might work. E anyhow, regardless of what model uh, you accept, whether it's a Scandinavian school or the uh, or Bailey's uh, informal controlled model or even blending the two to have a semi-formal controlled model, one thing we do see is that Bullman, his model just doesn't hold. And this idea that we can't know anything about Jesus uh, it doesn't hold either because, quite frankly, we see these mnemonic devices in the New Testament and really see it in the Old Testament as well, which tells us that the communities, the writers, were very much concerned about transmitting and passing along accurate information, factual information, as they, as they gathered it together as detectives would, as historians would, and certainly preserved by the Holy Spirit of God. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, are there good examples of oral traditions in the gospel? And I say absolutely. In my dissertation, I observed that the Sermon on the Mount was filled with Aramaisms, though it was written in Greek. It preserved and maintained this, these Aramaic um, traits that you would find in the Aramaic language, the language most likely in which Jesus taught. They, it also had several mnemonic devices signifying that the Sermon on the Mount was passed down from generation to generation and originated with Jesus himself. Joachim, or Joachim, however you say his first name, Jeremiah, said in his book, The New Testament Theology, that he believed that the Sermon on the Mount was likely a catechism for the for early Christians. Additionally, many of the narratives and stories about Jesus include similar traits. Thus, we have every reason to believe that the early church was concerned about accurately memorizing and transmitting the teachings and stories about Jesus, which means, if true, this means that we have a true and accurate story about Jesus of Nazareth, who we know as Christians to be the Son of the living God. So why does this matter? Before the Gospels and New Testament documents were written, the stories and message of Jesus lived in the confines of oral traditions. The same is true for many of the stories in the Pentateuch. If there is evidence that the writers of Scripture included mnemonic devices and Aramaisms, among other things in their writings, then we have strong evidence to suggest that the information, that the information about Jesus lived prior to its documentation. And while I believe the Synoptic Gospels were written prior to A.D. 64, and the reason for this is because Acts ends before Paul was executed. Paul was likely executed sometime between 64 and 67 AD. Acts ends before Paul was executed. Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And so the Gospel of Luke came before Acts. Luke depends on Matthew and Mark. Uh, he, he relies some on, on Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel. So if, and, and maybe even some common traditions that Matthew and Luke alone had. If that's the case, that means Matthew and Mark were written much earlier than Luke. Luke was written much earlier than Acts. So in my opinion, for what it's worth, I believe that all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written before 64 A.D. 
the Gospel of John, uh, even among conservative scholars, is believed to have been written around A.D. 85. So even if they were all much later, though, they could still remain accurate if the community of believers accurately preserved these oral traditions, these stories. And folks, studies, research have shown that these type of stories can be passed along hundreds of years, hundreds of years, if not even thousands of years, without changing any core detail of the stories, especially when the communities are involved in passing along the stories from one generation to the next. It's been shown and documented that cultures, even illiterate cultures, can accurately transmit information like this for hundreds and hundreds of years. So with that in mind, we have every reason for believing that the early church did just that. Additionally, this shows us that the Jesus traditions likely date to at least as early as the New Testament creeds, if not earlier. Now, if you think about it, now you may say, well, Brian, my memory is not that great. Well, it's better than you think it is. My good friend Curtis Avalo, you all know him as the cowboy apologist, he and I were talking about this very issue just the other night. And he likened oral traditions to a song. And you know what? He's right. When you hear the opening of, of a song, your mind automatically goes to what it is, the, the, the initial beats of the song, and what, what the words of the song are. So, for instance, if you hear the initial beat, dun, 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 don't ask me to sing, but you hear journeys don't stop believing, you hear the, the initial beat for that song, you automatically want to sing just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere. Why does that come to your mind? Because if you like Journey, as my wife and I do, you're going to know that song by heart. So whenever that, that chord starts, that chord begins, and the, and the piano begins playing, and you hear, uh, you hear that beat going, it automatically comes to your mind. The same holds true from Amazing Grace, Just As I Am. I mean, my goodness, I grew up watching Billy Graham on television. And whenever he gave the invitation and the song Just As I Am began playing, thousands and thousands of people from the bleachers would start coming down, responding to the gospel call. But that song is so powerful because it resonates with so many people who have received Christ as their Savior over the years. So likewise, once you learn a story and commit it to memory, then you can accurately communicate that information to others. And let's face it, most of the stories that Jesus told, the parables, are extremely easy to memorize and learn. The parable of the prodigal son, the, uh, the good Samaritan, parable of the good Samaritan, or the, the, the parable of the ten virgins or ten bridesmaids. Half of them had oil for their lamps, half of them didn't. This is just coming off memory. Uh, the, the, the pearl of great price. That's another great parable. I mean, you just stop and think about it. You could recount and tell these stories verbatim, but especially in a group, especially in a community. You can self-correct it if you make a mistake. But when you have the community's involvement, you can pass along these stories accurately from one generation to another. The accuracy of oral tradition, tradition transmission is just another reason why we should believe in the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of the Bible, God's holy word, especially if the Holy Spirit of God 
is involved in the process because the Holy Spirit can work through these oral traditions, bringing back to people's memory. How many of you have ever had a time, I know I've had it in my life, how many of you have ever had a time where you're going through a difficult situation in life and the Holy Spirit brings to your memory a passage of Scripture? You don't even remember memorizing that passage of Scripture, but it brings it to mind. You don't remember where it is in the Bible, but you know the passage of Scripture and you remember it accurately because the Holy Spirit of God brought it to your mind. Mind, mind at a point in time when you needed it most. If you're like me, that's happened numerous times. Well, don't you believe that the Holy Spirit of God could accurately contain and preserve the story of Jesus and the stories that we find in the New Testament and Old Testament alike through these oral traditions and these communities? My friend, I believe he can, I believe he has, and I believe he will continue to preserve these stories until Jesus returns. Well, folks, this has been Dr. Brian Chilton, and you've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. Be sure to join us next week as we talk a little deeper about the formation of the New Testament canon as we're joined by Dr. Benjamin Laird, author of Creating the Canon, and Dr. Leo Purser of Liberty University. I'm excited about this, and I hope you will join us next week for what should be a compelling discussion. Again, this is Dr. Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. We'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Good night. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. This program is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. If you enjoyed this podcast, then be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review. Also, tell a friend. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Thank you.